You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 65, Distinguishing Fantasy from Reality. Sometimes people say that children can't distinguish fantasy from reality. But as my co-host Jim says, it's amazing that even adults can do it at all. So Jim, what is the interesting problem on the topic of distinguishing fantasy from reality? When we think of memories and beliefs, the things that come to mind are things that we actually believe are true. But our mind contains much more than that. So right now, for example, I'm not wearing a purple hat. But you could imagine or suppose that I'm wearing a purple hat. And a few minutes later, you might reflect on this idea of me in a purple hat. And this means that there's something in your memory about me having a purple hat even though you didn't see me in a purple hat and you don't believe that I was wearing a purple hat. So you can remember what you imagined before. So it's kind of like a belief and it is a memory, but it's a hypothetical situation uh, and it's not a memory that you created from something that you saw in the real world. Okay. So, so now let's take this imaginary scenario and change it a little bit. So what do you think would happen if I was wearing a purple hat and it were on fire? Well, I can imagine that you would probably try to take it off your head, and if you didn't, your head would be burned. Right, something like that. Now, what's interesting is that the reasoning that you just used to predict the outcome of this imaginary situation is based on your knowledge of how the real world works, right? Not an imaginary world, but the real world. Right, like I know most hats are flammable and fire can burn your head. And so you applied this knowledge of the real world involving things that you really do believe, like that fire can burn hats and people, and you applied it to an imaginary situation. Right. I suppose because it is an imaginary situation, it could have been an imaginary world where fire didn't burn things, but I mm -hmm. didn't, that wasn't the first thing that came to my mind. I predicted what would happen in the imaginary situation as though it were in the real world. Yeah, right. So mm -hmm. your ability to apply world knowledge and reasoning Two imaginary situations, right, suggest that these imaginary memories and memories of things that you actually experienced are both stored in the same kind of format. Okay, so what do you mean by the same format? Yeah, this is an information processing way to look at memory, and, you know, cognitive scientists like to do that. Mm. Um, so if you know that fire burns things, you can use that understanding to predict the outcome of real world and imaginary situations. And this strongly suggests that the representation in your head of imaginary and real situations are both in a form that can be applied to the same reasoning, right? So they're, they're in some ways similar because your reasoning about the real world can apply to imaginary and real things. So, because we have a reasoning system that can work on certain kinds of things in the mind, imaginings and real memories or beliefs are probably the same kind of thing? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah, that's, what, yeah, that's right. So, now we come to the problem. Because if imaginary and real situations are stored in your head as memories in the same format, then when you recall one, how are you supposed to know if it's imaginary or if it really happened? Right? It's not like you're pulling different, completely different th kinds of things out of your head. Right? I see. It's almost so, like the, you know, like if you have a hallucination or false memories, right? 
Yeah, yeah, and we'll, and we'll get to those because that's where it breaks down, but, you know, it normally works. So I asked you to imagine me wearing a purple hat. Um, now, you are not going to continue throughout your day believing that I was wearing a purple hat, okay? Somehow, you're able to distinguish your memory of a fantasy from your memory of reality, and the problem, as you asked, is how do we do that? And I can already think of the some situations where it could go wrong if someone has a dream and occasionally thinks what happened in the dream actually happened in real life. Like when I wake up and I think that my husband's cheated on me. <laughs> right. <laughs> For example, <laughs> you have dreams like that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, God. You wake up pissed off, right? Yeah. So your mind, your mind uses some method to distinguish fantasy from reality, okay? And it's not foolproof. Right. As you, as you mentioned, right. But it's so good that it's actually hard to think of cases in one's life where these mistakes happen. So it's rare, which means we're really good at it. Yeah. And this is a super important ability. If I ask someone to imagine they could fly and what it would be like to fly around the city above all the buildings, if later they couldn't tell that that was a fantasy, they may actually think that they could fly. Right. And yeah, and do something very stupid, right? So that's exactly right. So our ability to think about hypothetical situations is kind of a human superpower that is either rare or non-existent in other animals, okay? It allows us to virtually simulate things without having to try them in the real world. Uh, now, a more prosaic example is when you're simply planning. So, after you realize that Ryan didn't cheat on you, you might plan <laughs> with him. <laughs> you might talk with Ryan like, okay, we got a lot of things to do today, you know, and uh, who's going to pick up the kids and who's going to do this and that, and you might come up with several hypothetical afternoons of how things could go, how you're going to spend the day, how things are all going to get done. And you might come up with several plans before you finally decide on one and assign duties or whatever. You might think who's going to drive when and where and so on. Um, and you're going to use your real world reasoning to think about how practical each one is and whether it's going to work. But, you know, wouldn't it be terrible if later you thought you'd actually done all of those contradictory things? Like every, every single plan you made, you thought you'd actually done? <laughs> Well, you just described our weekend, <laughs> thinking about all the things that we have to do. And then, honestly, sometimes I do have the, like, sometimes I'll, I'll write emails in my head, and I think that I've actually sent them off. But anyway, but normally, our ability to distinguish fantasy from reality is quite foundational to our minds working properly. Yeah, it's interesting. So few people recognize it as something that the mind actually even has to do. It's so effortless. Well, so this begs the question, how does it actually work? Okay, so one line of research suggests that we examine the properties of the memory and we look for clues as to whether it actually happened or not. So it's kind of like we infer from the status of the memory whether it actually happened, okay? Um, so, so if I say, imagine uh, being in a grocery store on Mars... <laughs> and you and you sneeze and the proprietor says looks like somebody's allergic to great prices okay so this <laughs> if you, now later <laughs> later you might um you might recall you might recall that i asked you to imagine being in a grocery store on mars and you would very quickly realize that it wasn't a real memory because you know that you've never been to mars okay um, anyway, so that's that's how it works here. So for most people, when they imagine a situation, it's less vivid in their minds. That's another clue, okay? Vividness of a memory is often used as an indicator of whether it actually happened. And another one is the amount of detail. These are different things in, in imagery. And actual memories of events tend to have more detail than things that were just imagined. 
Yeah, and sometimes when people are trying to convince you that their memory is accurate, they'll put in these details into their description. Like, I remember you sitting right there. You were wearing a blue shirt and a purple hat. Right. So in psychology, this we call this source monitoring. It's like you trying to monitor the source of your memories. So is this the only theory about how we distinguish fantasy from reality? No. So there's another theory, and that says that each one of our beliefs is tagged to allow us to distinguish fantasy from reality. So in other words, if you imagine me with a purple hat on, your mind will attach to it another belief that this is something you imagined, it's a hypothetical situation, something along those lines. So when you recall the memory of me wearing a purple hat, you also retrieve, sub, you know, perhaps subconsciously, but you retrieve a tag attached to it that says that it didn't really happen. So which one is accurate? Source monitoring or this tagging thing? Yeah, I think both of them happen. I think first one and then the other, right? So um, I think we infer whether something was real or not at first. We use like the, you know, the source monitoring clues to, to determine at first. But after you've determined that it's a fantasy or that it really happened, then you can have another memory because you've already determined it, right? So you can add, add like a tag or another belief hmm. saying whether, which one it was. Okay, so we've talked already about you wearing... Uh, this purple hat and how it's imaginary and I can remember identifying it as imaginary so yeah right yeah so you don't have to figure it out all over again right you right. don't have to like look at the vividness you don't have to you know whatever because you simply just remember yeah remember that's, what you a lot of work. already determined yeah yeah hmm I see so let's go back to how we make inferences about imaginary situations so at first I asked you to imagine me wearing a purple hat and then I asked you to imagine uh, that it was on fire. And you inferred that I would try to put the fire out. And you were using real-world reasoning to predict the outcome of the situation. So you're imagining me trying to put the fire out as a result of both imaginary and real-world beliefs. Whoa. Yeah. So <laughs> when you make inferences about real situations, you believe the inference is true in the real world. So let's say you put a, a leftover sandwich in the fridge and then you come home and it's gone you might infer that somebody, somebody ate it, okay? And you actually believe somebody ate it, right? Because the sandwich being in the fridge in, to begin with was not an imaginary situation, okay? However, when you make inferences about imaginary situations, even though you're using real-world knowledge, you also those inferences are also have to be determined as imaginary, right? Let's just stop and marvel at the amazingness that is the brain that keeps track of all this, and we don't even think about it. Yeah, right? It is amazing. So, um, now there's one theory out there, uh, and it's by a philosopher named Sean Nichols, and he calls, um, the, he calls it the pretense box. So, pretense is another word for make-believe or imaginary. And his idea is that when you have a hypothetical situation or a fantasy or something, your mind puts that in a pretense box. And anything in the pretense box, your mind can safely understand as imaginary. And any inferences made using facts in the pretense box also go in the pretense box. This sounds a lot like the tagging theory that you were talking about. Yes. So the box is just metaphorical. Nobody thinks there's a box in your brain. <laughs> you know, so in terms of information processing, there really isn't a difference between tagging a bunch of beliefs and thinking of them as being in a box. The point of all this is that imaginary facts need to be quarantined from all the other facts that you actually believe. I feel like this is what happens when philosophers try to think about the brain, right? <laughs> anyway, but I'm So, do they actually call it quarantining? That seems like a curious term. 
Yeah, they do. Because the idea is that if you let your imaginary ideas combined with world knowledge generate new ideas that you actually believe, then you're, anytime you think about a possible future or a fantasy, it'll cause you to believe things that aren't true in the real world, right? So the idea is that your real world beliefs could get infected with imaginary properties um, that shouldn't have been believed. So your, your they think of it like infection, right? So it's like you're, you have to keep your imagination quarantined from your actual beliefs so that it, you don't end up believing things that you just imagined. So what do you think about this pretense box theory? So I think it's pretty good. And as I said, I think that there's tagging going on. So I think there's something to it. But I don't think it's the whole picture. Um, and now I want to take an example. Let's take a classic example of imaginary beliefs, and that's reading fiction. Okay, so suppose that you're reading The Lord of the Rings. That's a long, a long story in three books, right? And in order to understand this story, to be able to keep track of what's going on, you need to have memories and beliefs about elves and dwarves and dragons and the ring and, and things like that. And as many online discussions demonstrate, people can get into lengthy discussions reasoning about what is and isn't true in the world of The Lord of the Rings. Which is further evidence that we use our reasoning abilities with pretend material. Yeah, and some people actually call them make-beliefs <laughs> instead of beliefs. Very cute. Yeah. Mm. So, anyway, so reading Lord of the Rings takes a long time. Now, suppose while you're reading Lord of the Rings, you're also reading the Narnia series. Okay? Now, according to the pretense box theory, all of the beliefs about the Lord of the Rings and all the beliefs about Narnia are going to go in the same pretense box, effectively, so they are quarantined from your real beliefs. Uh-oh, I see a problem happening here. Yeah, so it seems that the pretense box theory predicts that all the things that you thought were true in Lord of the Rings would also be true in the Narnia books and vice versa, right? So you might think, oh, why doesn't Sauron just walk through a wardrobe and kill everyone in Narnia, right? Like, we don't do that. Uh, we keep track of them. Yeah, and it would also include things like planning to pick up your kids and who's going to walk the dog and what groceries you need. Yeah, yeah. So that's not what happens. We have no trouble keeping track of multiple stories, TV shows, movies, hypothetical situations, plans, and other things, right? No problem at all. You could be reading three books, watching a long TV show, watch a movie, and hear a story about what you might do tomorrow, and you don't confuse them. But if they're all in the same pretense box, you would. So the problem is bigger than just quarantining our beliefs from fiction. We need to quarantine some fictional worlds from the other fictional worlds. Yeah, and if you only have one pretense, pretense box, it doesn't allow these sort of fine-grained quarantines. Correct. Right. So, what is the solution? So, I co-wrote a paper with a philosopher named Jeanette Bicknell describing what our solution to this problem is. So, it's a, it's a theory, right? And I, we call it the micro-theories. And the idea is that after source monitoring decides uh, in what contexts a fact is true, it gets tagged as being true in some system or some micro-theory or, you know, some fictional world. So, for example, the, facts, the fact that hobbits go barefoot is something true in The Lord of the Rings, but is not true in Narnia, and it is not true in the real world either. It's sort of true in the, the world of Tolkien. Right. Okay. So, I call this the many stories problem, okay? So, like, another example, just imagine a Shakespeare scholar who knows all the plays really well, but, but had trouble keeping track of which characters were in which plays. <laughs> Which, let's be honest, could be an actual problem. So, you have different tags for different, what, imaginary worlds? Yes. So, lots of pretense boxes, not just one? 
Yeah, it's one way to think about it, but it gets even more complicated because these theories, these little these tags or whatever, can be nested within one another. I don't okay fully understand that. So, what does that mean? Okay, so let's let's have a little. I'm going to tell a little story to use as an example. So, David was doing his nightly prayers, facing a crucifix on the wall, when he noticed motion near the window. A bat had flown in and was transforming into human form with a vicious smile and sharp fangs. This is a great story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you. Anyway, so somebody listening to this story, what would they think? They might think that maybe, oh, David, you should grab the crucifix and hold it up. There's probably, it's probably a vampire, okay? And they think that, you know, this is because they think that in the world of the story, there's a vampire in the room. Yeah, got you. Okay. Mm -hmm. But where do they get the idea that vampires can be repelled with crucifixes? Probably from other vampire stories? Yeah, I didn't, I mean, there's nothing in that story that Mm. says it's a vampire even or whatever, right? So upon hearing the story, it probably gets classified as a vampire story. And so the things that you, quote unquote, know about vampires from other stories get transferred into this one. Okay, so I think I see what you mean by nested. The story about David and the vampire is nested within a micro theory of vampire lore or something. Right, vampire lore, right? So let's take somebody reading one of the Twilight novels. Okay, so in these novels, the vampires don't die in sunlight, they sparkle. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, read those <laughs> books. Oft mocked yeah. part of the Twilight series. <laughs> so now look at this complicated thing. In the real world, we don't even believe in vampires. Okay? But in vampire lore, we believe in vampires and we think they can't go out in the sun because they'll burn. But then within vampire lore, we have a Twilight series that says vampires can go in the sun. So you've got, you notice you've got like three different beliefs that are contradictory at three different levels here of the nested micro theories. Right, so you've got you know within within you can have contradictions with things at the, at the different levels, all in your memory at the same time. So the idea that vampires will die in the sunlight isn't just a matter of true or false; it really depends on the context. Right, and I think most people kind of believe this. Like, if you ask somebody, "Is it true that vampires burn in the sunlight?" They'll sort of like make a weird motion with their head and be like, "Well, you know, in the context of vampires being real, yes." We got the term micro-theories from an artificial intelligence project that basically found out that almost no facts are universally true. Hmm. Like when you try to come up with facts that are just absolutely true, it turns out they're only true in contexts. And so they decided to call these different contexts micro-theories. That's where we got the name. So most facts aren't universally true? (laughs) I feel like... (laughs) Let's take something that seems obvious, that water is wet, right? Well... That's not true if water is frozen, and it also doesn't make sense to say that a single molecule of water is wet. Okay, I think I'm with you. I yeah. get it. So mm-hmm. it just turns out that when you when you really think about it and try to make a huge artificial intelligence uh. knowledge system, you mm-hmm. find out that a lot of the things that we think of as facts are are contextually true, and we tend to just think of one you know that context when we think about the fact. Yeah, now that I think about it, the idea of one pretense box doesn't even make sense when you're trying to plan your day. If you think about a possible future for this afternoon and then think of three more, if they're all in the same pretense box, they would all they they wouldn't be part of different possible scenarios. They'd be part of one big complicated scenario. Yeah, right. So you can it turns out this nested micro theory idea works beyond thinking about fictional worlds like Narnia or something. You can have micro theories for a bunch of possible futures and keep them quarantined from each other. Uh, like a plan A, plan B kind of thing, right? So I, I also think it might actually explain 
our ability to keep track of what other people believe. Oh, like theory of mind stuff. Yeah. So mm. often when you keep track of, you know, you have to keep track of what someone else does or does not know or what someone does or does not believe. So, for example, Kim, you've probably heard the idea that the Earth is flat. I've heard of this idea. You've heard of this idea, and it's yeah. in your memory, right? You can, you just sort of know, you understand the concept of it. You have it in your memory. So to call, you know, to call it a belief is a little weird because you don't actually endorse the idea. Right it's there. Yeah, I know it's an idea, and I also know that I don't believe it. It's an idea that is in my memory, but I also know it or think of it to be false. Right. So if you met like a flat earther, you might infer that they believe that the earth is flat, even if you don't. So would that be considered a micro theory? Well, I think it could be, right? Um, you know, it's, I don't know how I'd get evidence for this, but the theory kind of could help understand this. I think that you might have a micro theory of what somebody believes. So if you meet Bob, the flat earther, you could have a what Bob believes micro theory to keep track of what he believes. And that would quarantine those ideas from what you believe and what other people believe. Right. So you probably know that I don't think the earth is flat. So, you know, you, you know, you think Bob thinks the earth is flat. You think I don't think the earth is flat. And maybe they're just tagged with, a, you know, what Jim believes, what Bob believes, right? I feel like I've stumbled into a philosophy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is like... But it's a real problem, though. The thing is that like, sure. when, when a lot of psychologists and neuroscience think about memories, they think about veridical things that you believe. Mm. But we have so many more. There's mm. so much that... And, you know, and how do we... And how do you, you know, keep track of it all? You know, and, you know, what about what Bob believes Angela believes, right? Yeah. Or, you might know that, too. So, if you think that Bob thinks that Angela thinks something, then you could have Angela's belief nested in what Bob believes. Uh, so it gets it gets deep so humans are actually really good at this and we can keep track of several levels of i know that you know that i know kind of thing right god so uh yeah it's it there's got to be something something's gotta got be going on there. sounds like an lsat prep test okay <laughs> you remember those <laughs> lawyers are good at this <laughs> yeah yeah like you know angela who has a red shirt can't sit next to tony who has a blue shirt but tony can sit next to jim who has a yellow shirt who can jim not sit next to ah Okay, let's talk about kids. So, sometimes parents say that their kids can't distinguish fantasy from reality. Like, kids have imaginary friends and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, they do, they do say that. So, well, why is this funny? Well, often the same parents who complain that their kids can't distinguish fantasy from reality spend an enormous amount of time trying to convince their kids that fantasy things are true. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and... Yeah, like, they'll even eat cookies and forge documents to try to convince their children that they're Santa. Like, they really go to effort, and, you know, mm. and then they, they turn around and complain their kids, you know, <laughs> can't distinguish fantasy from reality, when the fact is they're, the kids are merely believing what their parents told them in many cases. I guess that is funny. Mm -hmm. So, but in general, the studies show kids are actually very good at distinguishing fantasy from reality. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, so if you look at pretend play, for example, a child might, uh, say, use a banana as a telephone, like in a little game of make-believe or something. But those children really don't expect that they're going to hear a voice out of the banana. And if they did, like if you hit, hit a mic or hit a, a, a speaker in a banana and it actually said hello, they would be shocked. <laughs> they, would, they, would, they would inquire, like, what the hell's happening, right? Um, or if they ask you to pretend you're a monster chasing them and they're running around laughing and having fun, they're not, they're not that scared because they know it's only pretend. 
that's true, but they may well still get kind of scared. You ever seen kids that are sort of laughing, but they're like hysterically laughing, you know, like fearfully laughing, right? Yes. And and because I can imitate monsters really well, some kids have to stop me and tell me to tone it down because it's actually getting too frightening. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, if you ham up the monster act, it can be distressing for the child. But let's not confuse this with them actually believing that you're a monster, right? And I like to think of a horror movie example. So, adults, they know perfectly well that what they're watching isn't real. But that doesn't stop them from being scared. But we don't turn around and accuse adults of being unable to distinguish fantasy from reality. Right. Only part of their mind thinks it's real, but not their belief system. Yeah. And psychologists call this double knowledge, right? So they uh, they suppose the banana is a phone, uh, but they also know that it's just a banana. Again, it's contextual. Maybe they have a micro theory for that playing session or something. Right. So it's a phone with respect to this episode of Pretend Play. But it's not a phone in general. The banana might be a gun in the next, the next, you know, game or something like that. And it's not a phone in general. And kids are pretty good at distinguishing even their imaginary friends from real friends, right? Oh, yeah. They're very good at that, right? In fact, sometimes, this is funny, I read this. When imaginary uh, companion researchers are asking their children details about their imaginary friends, sometimes the children stop the interview and they feel compelled to say something like, you know that this isn't a real friend, right? <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. Robin had an imaginary friend named Diga. I don't know where she got that name from, but that to this day, she's still, she's like, oh yeah, I did have that friend. And we, we can't really get much detail from her, which makes me wonder if that memory system is, is somewhat separate, degraded, right? Yeah, it's funny. Um, when kids, when kids get rid of their imaginary friends, it's very, uh, perfunctory and they might say oh he died I mean it's just like there's no <laughs> there's no fanfare like they can be very close to the friend but when it's done it's done huh. um, anyway so kids you know they, they say this to adults because no one's ever asked kids serious questions about their imaginary companions before so they wonder if the adults themselves are confused and they you know think they're asking about someone real <laughs> that's hilarious and a hat tip to episode 26 on imaginary people. Some people actually can't distinguish fantasy from reality very well. And I'm thinking, in fact, of folks that have schizophrenic disorders, right? Yeah, right. So often, not always, but often hallucinations are taken to be real. Okay, so this is, and this is considered a problem of source monitoring. Um, but really, we, we, we're all like this sometimes. We are? Well, when we're dreaming. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So when we dream, we take the products of our mind to be an external reality, at least while we're in the dream. And But it's your imagination, right? So it's a source monitoring problem. Fair enough. But let's talk about hallucinations being mistaken for reality. Right. So one theory to explain this, which I think we talked about in our hallucinations episode, is that when you imagine something, your mind sends a message to your sensory areas, alerting them of what's coming that say this is just from the mind, so your so your your sensory areas are prepared for it. Hmm, reminds me of like uh, you know when you scratch your own arm, you get you're this you know that it's you've got both the output and the input. Exactly, exactly. Physical touch is a great analogy. If you touch your own arm, you'll feel a hand on your arm, but you're not alarmed by this, right? It's because the motor system sent a message to your perceptual system telling it to expect there's going to be a feeling of touch on your arm, so you don't even notice it, but if the same sensation on your arm from someone else touching you is surprising. So if someone, hmm. you know, touches your arm, you turn and look because you figure somebody's trying to get your attention or whatever, you would notice you'd look to see what happened. You'd be like, who's touching me? Yeah, sometimes people with schizophrenia think that their own bodily emotions are not controlled by themselves. There's some outside actor right. or something, right? 
Yes, and this is one theory is that this is thought to be a problem with this, what's called the forward modeling system. So either the message is not getting sent or it's not being received. Interesting. So can you apply this to imagination? Yeah, that's the theory, right? So the idea is that when you imagine something like a sound or a picture, the reason you don't usually mistake it for reality is because there's been a message sent to your perceptual system uh, so that it's prepared. And with people who have schizophrenia, it's thought that this message either isn't sent or doesn't arrive. So your physical actions and your imaginings get interpreted as coming from the outside world, right? That must be, yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. We're not sure this is true. This is just a prominent theory out there. And sometimes we can mistake imagination for memory, right? Yes, yes. So this is uh, the theory of false memories. So yeah. the idea is that when you vividly imagine something, later you might mistake it for something that actually happened to you. I think this feels like it gets back to what you're saying about source monitoring, that the vid vividness of your memory and the details are clues that you use to infer that something did or did not happen. Right. And uh, evidence of that is that people who have more vivid mental imagery are more prone to false memories. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's been shown in the laboratory. Um, but it's a big, but false memories in general are a big problem when memory is important, like in court cases. Uh, but you know, I have a false memory. Really? Yeah. So when I was a child, I rode my tricycle down the steps. Really? <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, well, in the house, I had a little tricycle, and I just, like, rode it over, I rode it over the steps and tumbled down. So, this actually happened, right? So, Oh, this, tumbled, this is not your false memory. It actually happened. No, it, it, it what, okay. I'll tell you what's false about it. Okay? okay. I actually did. Okay. So, I, what happened was I tumbled over the tricycle, I fell down the stairs, then the tricycle fell down and landed on me. Oh, no. <laughs> very funny, in retrospect. Anyway, so I remember this very clearly, okay? But, I remember it being in the wrong house. What? Yeah. So it happened when I was probably three or four years old. And when I was that age, I was living in a different house than the one in my memory. In my hmm. memory, the house is the one that I lived in after I was five years old. That is bizarre. So would this be considered part of infant amnesia? Because you're so young? Yeah. So, yeah. So for most people, they can't remember any episodic memories before the age of around three or four. Wait, so people who have memories of things when they were three are probably experiencing false memories? Uh, for the most part, yes, right? And my huh. case shows how it happens, right? So mm -hmm. the story of me riding my tricycle down the stairs was told and retold in my family. And every mm -hmm. time it was told, I imagined it happening, but I imagined it in the house that I remembered. And now when I try to retrieve that memory, I don't realize that it's actually the result of my imagination, you know, what that was there when the story was told, I mistake it for an accurate representation of storing a memory when it happened. And, you know, there are probably people in our audience thinking that, oh, I remember things when I was three. But if you think about these early memories that you have, they're almost all stories that were told in your family. Like, it, like think mm -hmm. it, try to come up with a memory of something that happened to you when you were three that nobody else in your family knows. It's hard. Right. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Suggesting that, you know, they're probably false memories based on what you were told you did when you were a little kid. But you know that this tricycle memory is not an episodic memory. Yes. So that's where it gets, this is where it gets a little complicated. I know that intellectually, right? But just, you know, my point is that it feels indistinguishable from an actual episodic memory. Like when I recall it, it doesn't seem any different. I just like, I just know it must be false because it's the wrong house, right? It's mm -hmm. almost like, um, 
you know, when you're scared at a horror movie, you know it's fake, but at the same time, you can't help but get scared. I know it's not a real memory, but it, sur- it sure feels like one. Hmm. So my my belief about it is a very cerebral, you know, oh, yeah, I got to remember that's a false memory kind of belief. So now you've got it tagged as a false memory in your Right, head. right. So yeah. if I do the normal source monitoring, it seems to be a real memory, hmm. right? But because I have it tagged as a false memory, I know that it didn't happen that way. So in our episode on imaginary people, we talked about people creating imaginary friends called, I think you called them tulpas. And if I recall correctly, yeah. these were created by long episodes of practice where you'd imagine these friends very vid- vividly, right? Yeah, exactly. So I guess in this case, you know, the vivid imagination in enforcing a tulpa is what they call it, is helping them to eventually mistake their imagery for a character or something that is real. Hmm. And you know how you said that ideas infer f- from imaginum, imaginary situations are not treated as real? Yeah. Well, I was thinking about some historical and scientific novels like those written by James Michener or Michael Crichton. Mm, right, yes. And some novels have a lot of factual information in them, and some people like to read novels like that because they learn something about the world. That's right, yes, they do. So somebody might read Jurassic Park and come away believing some things about dinosaurs or DNA in the real world that may not actually be true. How can that happen? Well, they might be true, right? I mean, yeah. that, but it's a great it's a great question. How, you know, uh, yeah, it's a great question. Well, if you put beliefs about the world of Jurassic Park in a micro theory, then how could you learn about anything in the real world from it? Yeah, so we don't really know. Right. So when you read a novel like Jurassic Park, I think your mind is trying to figure out what's real and what's not. So you don't believe that Jurassic Park exists, but you do believe that dinosaur DNA can be stored in amber. You know, you you might because Michael Crichton, you know, that he's the kind of person who does his homework on this kind of thing. Mm. You know, you might believe in the that the behavior of the dinosaurs is our best scientific theory at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. But you might be unsure about whether the island of Isla Nublar is even a real island or not. Is it real? <laughs> no, it's not a real island. <laughs> it sounds like what you're saying is we try to figure out what we're learning um, about the real world and what stays as fiction. Science doesn't really understand how people do this. Like, how can, you know, like holding all these facts in your head, like extrapolating real from imaginary, like that seems like an awfully complex thing to be able to do and which makes sense if we don't really understand how to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you, you read a novel like Michener or Crichton, you will come away with an understanding, better understanding of the real world. But you also know that a lot of what you read was fiction. And yeah, we don't really have a good description of how we put things in one bin or the other. And there, you know, some things we're just unsure about. So like the, the idea of an island of Isla Nublar, like there's nothing implausible about there being an island called Isla Nublar. Like that's perfectly it sounds very plausible so is there really an island or not like you can't really noodle it out just by reading the novel he could have he could have chosen an actual island name and the story wouldn't have been any different right um so yeah and not only do we not know how it works i don't even think there's any work on it like it's a problem for both the pretense box theory and my micro theory theory but we do know that people take away ideas about reality from fiction so For sure. And now we have this great magic thing called Google where we can search information at our fingertips and also find out a lot of really blatantly wrong information too, right? So you can probably get um, more quote-unquote evidence for your fictional beliefs. But 
Mm-hmm. Back to reading, like we did, I, I know you've made this comment before in one of our episodes, uh, the 20 Facts with Kim and Jim, that reading fiction can help with um, empathy and compassion and understanding other people's points of view. And I think that's super cool. And on that note, I want to remind everybody that imagination is Jim's area of expertise. And Jim, you've written a book about this, right? I did. It's called <laughs> Imagination, the Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power. So if you want to read more, check that out. And it's not fiction. Yes. <laughs> so you can go ahead and tag everything in it as true. Excellent. <laughs> Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.